the fact that there's so much physical buying that it's threatening the reserves of these two major exchanges has been astounding. And we haven't even gotten into an economic crisis. What happens when we hit an economic crisis and people go to gold and you know people can't afford gold, go to silver. Uh, what's that gonna do to inventories if we're trading so thinly in, in quote unquote a normal market? Physical silver and gold in your hands. Personal service, competitive prices, and zero complaints. That's Miles Franklin. Call us at 1-800-822-8080 or email us at info at milesfranklin.com. Hey everyone, this is Elijah K. Johnson with the Miles Franklin Market Update. And back with us today is Robert Keentz from Gold Silver Pros. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on, Elijah. It's good to be back. Really, this month we've seen quite a rally. And you've also been talking about how we continue to see metals being taken off the exchange and also the commercials reducing their short positions. So kind of looking at the big picture, what is happening right now? Yeah, it seems as though uh, for the first time and gosh, almost since uh, the year 2000, that a lot of the precious metals are actually leaving COMEX depositories here in the U.S., especially silver. Uh, oh, gosh, is it 30, 35, 40 million ounces now? I've, I've lost track. And that really started uh, not too long ago. It started within the last, I guess, three to four weeks in earnest. And what had happened was there was a buildup in silver last year because we had the pandemic. We had the silver price spike. Gold went up as well. Uh, people were, of course, going to the precious metals as a, as a safe haven. Silver really, really went up. I think it was, I want to recall, from like $11 to $29, something in that range. And we saw a lot of arbitrage between the COMEX and the London markets in, in terms of the exchange for physical. That went on for about three and a half, four months in silver, and then it died down. And now the exchange for physical is back. Uh, the futures traders are playing pi price arbitrage between the COMEX and the, and the London markets because of the, the differences in, in the spot in the futures price and also potentially get some, some exposure to the London market in terms of the physical precious metals. And it seems to me that, that the EFP, the, the increased taking of the actual physical metal off COMEX, not just moving it from futures trading and registered to the vault storage and eligible, which is how COMEX tracks it, but actually physically pulling it off. And then also you're seeing some of the shorts reduced by the bullion banks in, in silver as well. Not, a, not as much gold, but in silver. That seems to me, it's almost like it's setting up for another silver bull run. And over the last few months, silver's held up better than gold uh, in terms of overall price. I think gold has had a nice little 20% or so retracement, which is normal after you know reaching an all-time high of, I think it was around 20, 60, 20, 70 an ounce uh, last year. So definitely makes sense. But it seems as though silver is setting up for an, uh, another bull move and, and the stars are kind of, kind of aligning for that. In gold, I think there's more above-ground stock available, so uh, I do think gold is setting up for its next move, although I think its timeline is a little bit different than what silver is. Now, you're talking about how the reduction in the commercial short positions kind of signal that we might be having a new bull run. Some people argue that the short positions don't really mean a lot because they're hedges of clients' long positions. So what is your perspective on that? So when I took the Series 3 commodities license years ago, I was working for a currency broker. They teach you uh, that, that governing licensure exam and materials, they teach you that the reason for the commodities markets is to smooth out price to help producers and merchants. Because if you think about it, and you're a farmer and you're bringing wheat and you're having to plan six months a year ahead of time, it's nice to know that you have some level of, of 
uh, smooth prices that you can get your target price for so that you can plan ahead of time. You can buy your seed, you can lease your tractors, pay for land, all, all of those things go into it. So legitimate hedging and, and on the producer side, if you're going to be producing a commodity, especially a precious metal, which is very finite in value, if you're producing that commodity and your, your timeline is to best two to three years to get the mine built, you kind of want some price stability on that side too. If the price uh, falls quite a bit, then you have price exposure to downside. Uh, the farmers and people that, that are uh, producing you know, also have downward price exposure. If you're a merchant and you're using that in your product, then you have upward price exposure. Let's say the price of silver goes from $20 to $25. How does it affect Tesla or Apple or people that use a lot of silver in, in their products? So they may want to uh, take a long and futures position so the price does rise. They can offset that actual market price with what we're seeing in the actual exchanges. So essentially, there are legitimate hedges in the market, and certainly, you know, the regulators want that and the participants want that. Not all of the futures trading is legitimate hedges because, for example, especially in precious metals, if you look at the overall production of silver, for example, you can see that there are enough futures positions traded in a day that sometimes covers the entire yearly production uh, production of silver, and the overall open interest in the market, you know, it covering the next two to three months of the of that production because that's what a futures does you take two to three months ahead you trade that month and it hedges you for the next two to three months and then you rotate your position you roll it to the to the next active trading period so when you're doing that you're you're hedging that production for a small period of time but there are so many contracts that it dwarfs the actual production and some of the commercial interests the commercial banks and the hedge fund managers aren't hedging all that production because the producer merchants have their own category on the commitment of traders report from the CFTC, which basically, you know, that's their hedges. So they actively participate directly in the market. Some, of course, will hire a bank or some entity to do it for them because they may have access to it and have the expertise. But the majority of the production, especially precious metals, is hedged in the market directly by the merchants and producers. That's why they have their own category on the COT report that you can download from CFTC.gov. So a lot of the additional uh, activity in the futures market is price speculation. That's the only thing it could be. It cannot be hedging because you can only you only need to hedge one time. So if you're producing one ounce of silver, you only need to hedge at one ounce of silver. If you're producing a million you know bushels of wheat, you need to hedge that million bushels of wheat. Why would you pay a fee to then go hedge the next million bushels if you know you're not going to produce it, right? So you try to guesstimate what you're going to produce. You hedge to, as much as you can to that point, and that's your insurance. That's your price insurance. But what we see in the futures position, they have so many more futures contracts than, than what we produce, especially in the precious metals, that you know it's speculative activity. And we know that the, the some of the money, managed money category are nothing but hedge funds going in there and getting exposure to price. And in fact, if you look at the Simi Group's website who manages these exchanges, they basically state this on the website. They state it for the EFP, Exchange for Physical Mechanism, between the COMEX and London markets, and they state it for... Uh, the other markets as well, that yes, there are legitimate hedges, but a lot of this is speculation. And they even have something called position limits on the markets to try to limit how many positions an individual entity can take. Uh, as to whether those are effective in keeping them down to actual hedges, I don't think so, just based upon the total number of contracts. So the markets aren't really just for physical production and use of those products. It's really become a speculator's market in large part. And that's uh, interesting, definitely an interesting perspective. And we'll put in the description links to the CMA website and also links to to get all these perspectives on the precious metal manipulation debate. And one of the things I really wanted to maybe hone in on is 
kind of this this theme that yeah we are seeing something drastically different now than we've seen in the past you've you said how there's this trend shift essentially that a reversal that we haven't really seen in 20 years can you expand on this yeah there's a re- reversal in the way that certain traders are are playing in the market so typically a lot of the bullion banks will go short precious metals for example they have bigger short than, than long positions net net they're short uh, some of that, that's starting to change somewhat in, in gold and silver. It especially has changed in silver if you look at the short positions and who's concentrated. The producer merchants are really outweighing the bullion banks. And that's, you know, that's not typical. Usually the bullion banks have as many short positions. And so it seems as though some of the banks, maybe the more savvy ones, are positioning for a long move because they know that once that price goes long, they don't want to be overly short for two reasons. One, if you're short, you you and a long is standing for delivery, you may have to actually deliver the metal. And if you don't have it, then you have to either you know settle for cash or find the metal in another market. There's going to be transaction costs there um, and delays as well. Secondly, if you're short, uh, you could lose money on the contract. Even if you're paper trading that contract, you could lose cash on the on the value of that contract. So you don't want to be too short when the outlook is that the precious metals prices are going to go up. And this is true, you know, of, of all commodities. You don't want to be to one side of it when the market turns. Then if you go look at the physical trade, we had a report come out from the LBMA on their website, 2021 spring report on silver, and they admitted that had the the retail trading into the SLV, which is the iShares SLV Silver Trust Fund that you can invest in as a fund in the market, doesn't have direct access to silver, but it's like a proxy in a way, that if that trade had continued past the first couple of days of February for another couple of weeks, that London would have run out of silver. So that retail trade is pulling so much silver out of London where the SLV uh, stores its metal. You know, when people come into SLV, let's say they're buying shares, I think it's every two shares is equivalent to, to an ounce of the metal. So if you buy enough shares, they have to then go buy the metal and they're gonna buy it in London because that's where they're storing their metal. So they're gonna buy it and either they're just gonna trade a warehouse receipt or they're gonna move it you know, into their warehouse off of that unallocated OTC market. So if that retail trading had continued for two more weeks, the LBMA, which runs that market, said they would have been out of silver. So there's been such physical demand that they're potentially running out of silver on some of these uh, markets because the, the demand in the derivatives in the futures contract or in the SLV or whatever the derivative is, is pulling physical metal either off of the market, like on the COMEX, they're pulling it out of, out of the warehouses, or in London, they were buying so much SLV that it was all going to SLV and there wasn't going to be enough silver for the rest of the London market to have that. And so then what happens? Then what happens is you have a shortage. And then when that happens at the commercial level, when you're talking about that happens at the COMEX or the, or the OTC market level, that's a big, big thing because we haven't had that since, really since these markets have existed, at least not to the extent that, that we have it. Of course, there was the Hunt Brothers' supposed attempt to, to corner the market in silver which ultimately fell through. But I think this is the closest we've ever gotten to actually bankrupting, you know, a big national exchange of metal, physical metal uh, that we've ever seen. And what's happening is in May, we had the 10 year anniversary of what happened in silver in 2011, where the the silver price went from $50 to 34. And a lot of people as commemoration of that 10 year anniversary are gonna go buy physical in May like crazy. So you have the, the Wall Street silver on Reddit, you have, uh, I have a lot of people emailing me saying, we're buy- I'm buying big amounts. And so that physical buying is going to intensify May. And the question is, how long can London hold out before they declare we've got no more metal? 
and maybe somebody comes and bails him out. If you look at what happened last year in the COMEX in July, it was right about the middle of July, JP Morgan moved 30 million ounces of silver from their vault, from the eligible category, which is just vault storage. It's not, not intended for future contracts, just being stored there for their customers or for their house account. They moved 30 million ounces in a single day into registered, and that's basically, I think, a bailout of the COMEX. It allowed enough liquidity in COMEX that it could keep operating. Then in February, uh, the LBMA admits that they almost ran out of silver. So twice, the major Western markets have almost run out of silver, we believe, based upon the data and what's what's going on below the surface there. At least, I would say, readily, readily available. Now, certainly, if you look at, at COMEX at the eligible inventories, if you paid a high enough price, could you get some of that? Could you tempt that out of people holding it? Sure, as long as it's not pledged in their contract. And that's what we don't know. We don't know how much is pledged to various private contracts. But just the fact that there's so much physical buying that it's threatening the reserves of these two major exchanges has been astounding. And we haven't even gotten into an economic crisis. What happens when we hit an economic crisis and people go to gold and you know people can't afford gold, go to silver. Uh, what's that going to do to inventories if we're trading so thinly in, in quote unquote a normal market? That's one of the things that is very intriguing is it's like, yeah, we're, we haven't had this economic crisis, but there's still this extreme demand for silver. And, and some of it, like with the silver squeeze and the movement there, it's a bit artificial in a sense that, you know, everyone is, is going into silver right now. But besides this whole movement, which, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, it's kind of to take control, right? To have some wealth outside the system, which, which I think having wealth outside the system, something physical, that's a very good thing. At the same time, some, uh, some of the movement you could say is artificial, right? But at the same time, regardless of this movement, there are so many fundamental reasons why silver should probably rise in the future. Well, they're very bullish fundamentals. Did you want to share kind of maybe if we take a step back, look at the fundamentals and what were the original reasons maybe that you started looking into silver, but also gold? I originally looked into it because in 2009, I was laid off from a job at a, at a big four accounting firm for not for performance reasons. Uh, I'd outperformed and received outperform ratings, but because they literally it was the height. February of 2009 was the height of the mortgage crisis. And I got laid off and I started looking into you know, ways to protect myself because I also had funds in the market. At the same time I got laid off, I just had a second child born. I was losing, you know, I was losing my retirement at the same time. I'm like, I lost my job. I lost my retirement. So I went into precious metals for that reason. But if you look at both gold and silver, they are used industrially. A, a lot of people say gold is not used industrially, but it is. It's used in computers. There are firms that will scrap computer motherboards, for example, and they will recycle that and will get the gold out of it. And they return more even than some mining companies who are pulling it out of the ground. It's more profitable. So there is that gold scrap business that pulls it out of electronics and things like that. And of course, gold is used in jewelry. If you look at silver, that is a completely different demand profile. Silver is used in everything. It's used in medical implements. It is used in every single electronic you have if you want to go an iPhone. So here's my iPhone right here. See if I can get it in the picture. That uses silver. Uh, I think there's 500 ounces of silver used in every warhead uh, that's used in uh, U.S. Army operations. So there is a lot of silver used everywhere. And if you look at what's going on with the space race, uh, Nokia just was re recently awarded a contract to build uh, wireless technology on the moon. So what's happening is we're expanding out of our earthen sphere and people are launching satellites and we have the space race. 
you have satellites going up, you have people putting space stations in space, you have people wanting to put communications infrastructure on the moon, and this is all public, by the way. This is a public on Nokia's website. So, so countries, you know, the US creates a space force, India's launched who knows how many satellites. It, it's dominance of the airwaves uh, for communications purposes and also for military purposes. So all of those demands are on silver. Of course, we haven't even talked about the EV industry, electric cars. We haven't talked about solar. We haven't talked about all of those green technologies in which you have to have silver because silver is the best conductivity and the malleability and everything that you can't get out of copper, aluminum, or gold because it's too expensive. You can get it out of gold, but it's too expensive. So silver is the best conductor. So as we build this technological economy, as we build more computing systems, uh, as everything becomes more technical and we move into this, this next phase of the information age, uh, that's going to increase and increase and increase the demand for silver. So even if you took out the recent investment demand, say back the last six or seven months, even the last year since the, the pandemic started, the, the demand for silver was going to outstrip supply. We had gone into a temporary shortage. If you look at the Silver Institute's report, they anticipate that silver usage industrially, demand is going to increase by over 100 million ounces this year to over a billion ounces for the first time. That's largely driven by industrial demand. We're not talking about the incremental investment demand. So there are factors in the economy that are pulling more and more silver. Now, going back to gold, it's not as much the industrial use, although there is industrial use. The main driver of gold is going to be Basel III and the central banks buying gold to, to shore up their balance sheets. If you look at Basel III requirements, the net stable funding ratio says if you have allocated gold, meaning it's held in the bank's name, and they hedge it in the futures market, it's equivalent in value as a reserve to cash. And so that allows the banks to acquire gold if they hedge it in the futures market and treat it as cash. And a lot of the central banks have been buying gold since uh, 2010, 2011, net, net, net buyers. And that trend is continuing. We see that in China. We see it in Russia. We've seen it in Hungary and in Germany, uh, Brazil, and a lot of these other nations are, are trying to either repatriate their gold or buy more gold. So gold is becoming more important in the financial system as well, in central banking. So all of these things, you know, for silver and gold are bullish for their overall demand, either from an industrial perspective or financial perspective, or the individual investor who's looking to protect their wealth, looking for other ways to protect their wealth outside of the stock market and the bond market. With respect to silver, if we do see prices rise significantly, for the industrial demand, can can industry swap to a different metal if, if silver becomes too expensive, or is it kind of like silver is really the only metal they can use? Silver is so unique that you cannot duplicate all of its properties in one metal. So there are substitution alternatives. Like in solar, they're finding ways to be more efficient with the building process, that each solar panel uses less silver. However, we're building more solar panels. So the net net of silver and solar panels is still expected to rise overall, uh, just because of pure volume of people wanting solar. Um, if you want to substitute for silver, uh, aluminum, copper aren't as conductive. So in certain really minute applications like your iPhone, you're not going to be able to substitute copper or aluminum. It just doesn't work unless you have a bigger footprint. And in this age of miniaturization, you know, in feature build, you know, on these mobile devices, it's basically silver or bust. Um, I don't think in the military, if you go and look at the military's use of silver, they say we cannot substitute silver in some of our warheads, some of our electronic equipment. We have to have silver. Uh, and if you look at its antibacterial properties, how do you substitute for silver in some some medical applications? You could use um, 
Copper has some antibacterial properties, but it basically has to be turned into brass, and then it's not as malleable, and it doesn't work quite as well in some instances. So in some cases, you can substitute for silver, but in most, you can only substitute partially, and then it gives you lesser quality, or you have to give something up. Uh, you have to give up some feature or some value. And the question is, will the consumer do it? Will the consumer say, we have a silver shortage, silver's going up, we'll substitute and not get that miniaturized iPhone now, I'm gonna go back to you know 3G quality phone. I, I highly doubt it, um, and I highly doubt that, that some of these military applications can, can substitute without compromising on their end goals, and the medical profession can, can, compromise, can substitute without compromising on their goals. Uh, and, and we talk about space race, you can't, you just, you can't, it's silver or bust in a lot of these applications. So I encourage people to go look at the many, many uses of silver. The, the Royal Chemistry Society, uh, out of Britain has really good information on all the minerals. You can look it up for silver, for gold, all the rest. And there's a lot of information available, uh, on the web as well, in which you can look up how silver is so important to our current economy. Now you recently put out a video kind of on the topic of uh, what kind of silver to invest in. You were commenting on this and you were pointing out how I think it was semi-numismatic coins are sometimes have an advantage over the, you know, the rounds and bars that don't really have any numismatic value. Now, this is somewhat controversial. Some people just say, you know, get as many ounces as you can. Other people say uh, the semi-numismatic really maybe you know increases in value more in some circumstances so did you want to kind of, kind of demystify that for us what is your perspective on what kind of silver to invest in sure i'll start by saying that i'm friendly to numismatic coins because as i've studied them more i've seen that they have advantages in certain situations uh if you're just getting into gold and silver for the first time and you're just getting a few ounces and you're new to this, I recommend just going for the bullion, the bars, the recognizable names from trusted dealers, such as Miles Franklin or others that you can find in the market. If you're a little bit more experienced, have a little bit more money, and you're looking at it really as a longer term investment, if you look at a chart of numismatics, especially the ultra rare coins, they do better than the actual bullion does in, in economic crisis terms. Even the semi numismatics and the lower valued numismatics, so say you've got something that's slightly numismatic. You know, it's a lower grade MS coin, but it's still, you know, a, a graded coin. Whenever you have shortages of the bullion product, like we've seen over the last year, those semi-numismatics go up in value a lot. And over the long term, numismatics tend to hold their value. And why? Um, they hold their value because they're collectibles. They There's main features of them. They have historical significance. They're rare. They're graded. Um, the, the way that they come in packages and they're protected so that they're not you know, tarnishing and things like that. There are a lot of advantages to numismatic coins. Now, if you're going to get into numismatic coins, it really helps to understand the history of numismatic coins. It helps to plug into the collector's community because it is a collectible item. So you want to plug into that community. And I would say pick an area of numismatics that fits you. Pick the semi-numismatics, pick the ultra-rare coins, pick the ones that you like and just track those. Become an expert in those two or three or four. And then it's really easy to do. It's no different than collecting any other collectible, an art piece. And, and something uh, that I wanted to point out, Elijah, is that a lot of collectibles are coming back. You know, when I was young, I used to collect baseball cards, Donruss, Tops, all the different brands. And then it went away and nobody wanted to do it anymore. Everything was electronic. Well, guess what? Baseball card collecting has come back in force. 
um, there are cards worth a lot of money that are being produced in the year 2021. And so people always come back to collectibles. It's somewhat cyclical. But in terms of the coin collectibles, they don't, uh, unlike the baseball cards and things like that, they don't tend to lose their value over time if you, if you look at the charts. They tend to do very well. And it tends to be a nice, slow, and steady appreciation uh, for those collectible coins. Uh, we have more information on this on our website. If you subscribe to our website and utilize our Gold, Silver Pros University, we have a whole article on this talk, with the charts and talking about you know how to get into it. But definitely, if, if you're past just buying a few pieces of bullion and you want to expand out, the, the numismatics are available. A lot of times, even when you have shortage of the bullion, and they can be a really good market to get into. And that's mainly for gold, correct? Or is it is it also for silver? It can also be for silver. So if you have a really rare silver coin that's graded well, uh, those coins can do very, very well. And the one thing about those collectibles, say you have a work of art. A work of art could be very cyclical because it's all, all of the value in art is in the eye of the beholder. It's different for coins made of gold and silver. The lowest value you're ever going to get is the melt value, right? So you're going to retain your value in the, in the coin. But your, the, the value that you get for the historical significance, the quality of the coin, the demand that's in that market is, is where you're going to get that additional value. And again, you know, I, a lot of times I, I see people gambling in the stock market or buying cryptos you know, or buying an expensive sports car. And I'm like, I would rather buy a numismatic coin. Right now, I would not go buy a share of Tesla. I would buy a numismatic coin before I would do that. I wouldn't buy Bitcoin because I've seen it crash 80% in a day. In fact, it did that last year. I believe it was 80% uh, last spring when we when we had, you know, the big market pullback after the pandemic was announced here in the, in the Western part of the world. And Bitcoin, a lot of the crypto complex just went, I mean, it just crashed. The numismatic coins did not. They held their value very, very strongly. And I think there's a lot more safety in them than people give credit for. And I think the easiest way to validate that Elisha is just look at the price charts. There are price charts out there and there are books out there that help you, help you understand their value. And you'll see they're much less volatile than a lot of other speculative assets that people get into every day and accept as normal. Look at your 401k. When I was in the Janus funds in 2000, the tech crisis, I lost 40% in the span of a month. And then I got out of all those funds. I sold it at a 40% loss because I'm like, I'm not losing anymore. And they continue to go down. Uh, I've never seen anything in my numismatic coin collection do that over the 12 years that I've been investing in them. So I'm sorry. I'll take numismatic coins over the general stock market and over the cryptos. I think that's a really good point how, yeah, there can also kind of be cycles, right? And if you if you catch the wave, then, you know, that can be a very good, very good asset to hold. But at the same time, as you mentioned, it's important to be an expert in that because there's a lot of scams out there and you don't want to be caught in one of those. So, But uh, Robert, thank you so much for your time today. If our viewers would like to hear more of these interviews, they can hit the subscribe button and the bell icon so they'll be notified of all the new interviews coming out. If people would like to uh, find you, where can they find you online? You can find me at goldsilverpros.com. You can email me at robert at goldsilverpros.com. You can find me at Twitter and on YouTube under Gold Silver Pros. Robert, any last thoughts you'd like to add? No, just uh, you know, educate yourself on the market. Uh, understand market dynamics. We teach cycle trading. Definitely educate yourself. We have free resources on the website. I know Miles Franklin does a lot of this as well. And just educate yourself on the market and invest in things that you feel are safe and protect your wealth over the long term. Fantastic. Once again, thank you so much for your time and God bless. Thank you. Physical silver and gold in your hands. Personal service, competitive prices, and zero complaints. 
That's Miles Franklin. Call us at 1-800-822-8080 or email us at info at milesfranklin.com.